Welcome to TBA 21 on stage. This podcast departs from a video work entitled New Scenario 2022 to 2023 by Afghan artist Rahrao Amarzad. The work was produced in collaboration with Castello di Rivoli for an exhibition entitled Artists in a Time of War, opening on March 14th, 2023, curated by Carolyn Christoph Bakargiv and Mariana Vecellio, following Amarzad's 2022 residency at the institution. Amarzad's contribution to the exhibition at Castello di Rivoli consists of two parts. Every Tiger Needs a Horse, 2022-2023, a painting installation and the video work presented here at TBA 21 on stage. Both works seek to emphasise the potential of a peaceful resistance through culture, as opposed to using violence to fight violence, an idea central to the artist's work. The paintings were produced through controlled gunpowder explosions of paint onto canvas by members of the Italian army at a military outpost, while the video work was filmed at three different locations, the Castello di Rivoli Museum, a garage, and a WW2 bunker, creating artworks that transform contexts of war into sites of artistic practice. Drawing on the importance of the use of poetry and the practice of symbolic interpretation in relation to politics in Amarzad's practice, this podcast is hosted by philosopher and writer Federico Campagna, who is joined by contributors Dr. Lucy Mercer and Ariana Dalla Costa. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to a new podcast episode for TBA 21, recorded on the occasion of Rara's Omarzad's exhibition. I'm Federico Campagna, and today I'll be the host of this episode. And before presenting the two guests that will accompany us today, let me start with a brief introduction to the topic of our conversation. This is an episode that is recorded for an art exhibition, but we will not be talking about art. None of the three of us today is an artist or a curator. So we won't talk about art directly. Our starting point will be Omarzad's artwork, but only to the extent to which it allows us to explore other things, series of topics. Let's say the background of his artistic production, the imaginary background. Our conversation today will revolve around two topics, or better, two pairs of practices, something that I see as elements in the imagination behind Omarzad's work. Poetry and politics on one hand, and magic and science on the other. So we will unfold these two areas of tension, intertwining their wires and expanding them in different directions, with two guests. Our two guests today are Dr. Lucy Mercer, lecturer in creative writing at Goldsmiths University of London, and the author of the recently published poetry collection Emblem, which was the Poetry Book Society's summer choice. And Arianna Dalla Costa, from the Barberg Institute, University of London, a researcher on the ancient art of divination, the interactions with medieval science in the Mediterranean, and especially the practice of geomancy in the medieval Arabic world. Dear Lucy and Arianna, thank you for coming on the podcast. Lucy, let's begin with you. Your latest collection of poems, Emblem, came out last spring. And the work on emblems, especially as they were used in the Renaissance, has been at the center of your research for a very long time. So before getting to your take, on the practice of emblem writing today. Can you begin by telling us what is an emblem and what's the use of images and symbols that we find in an emblem? Emblems are kind of notoriously difficult to define. 
they're a hybrid form of image and text and they originated when Andrea Alciate, the Renaissance uh, jurist and philologist, translated epigrams from the Greek anthology into Latin. And then a publisher, Heinrich Steiner, found a copy of this manuscript, which was supposed to be private, and added images to it to make them popular. I think Alciate was horrified by this because he thought that the quality of the images was really poor. So he quickly hurried to commission new images for it and the whole thing kind of spiralled and it ended up being this kind of accidental form where you would have a motto, often a moralising or didactic motto, an image, the, what, the emblems I'm interested in are from woodcuts, but later on they were copper plate engravings as well. But that change gave them a very different quality and a poem which in many instances, was a translation of another text, often epigrams from the Greek anthology. So you could say illustrated books of fables are emblems in a way. They do have this kind of specific history. That was the beginning of the emblem genre, as it were, and it spiralled out into different languages and different forms. And I think, really, it kind of has an element of it could be anything. One of the emblem scholars I really like, John Manning, he says, you know, what is an emblem? An emblem's like what it is, you know. It kind of resists definition. And I suppose that's particularly what interests me about them, as well as their kind of accidental qualities. When looking at Renaissance emblems, visually striking, which is the first thing. But one thing that always strikes me in particular is that they remind me of memes. I mean, they can remind you a bit of illustrated fables or comic books, but in a way they remind me very much of contemporary memes, sometimes moralizing or ironic mottos with the work between images and text. Do you think that this practice of emblems somehow still survives today? And how did that happen? Like, is something that is specific of the Renaissance or, so I'm going crazy seeing it in memes, or there is something that survived? I definitely think they could be seen as a continuation of the emblem memes, especially because often woodcuts were reused from older books. So if there were like emblems of trees or whatever, they might use woodcuts from a book of herbals and put that in the book because it would save them the time of making a new image. And so I think that kind of has parallels with the reuse of images in meme culture. I certainly think like posters and record covers I suppose to me, there is an element I'm quite interested in specifically at being woodcuts, which doesn't quite carry across. There's something about the materiality of woodcuts and woodcut printed text. It draws attention to writing as a kind of image in a way that you don't quite see where you have, say, like a classic meme font. Although that is writing as an image that there's just some kind of like slight strangeness and fluidity to woodcuts and the emblems were also printed with these very strange and surreal sort of baroque frames um, that kind of border it in a way like bordering a world that you fall into and I think also with memes there isn't that same kind of threshold perhaps where we fall into the image so I think there's continuations and, and diversions So you see them more as art forms than poetry, in a sense? 
Yeah, I think so in a way. I mean, when I was studying this emblem book, it's written in Latin and I can't read Latin. So the actual content of the poems was of less interest to me than how poems can be visual images and how we might try and understand that which we can't know or what we can't easily interpret. Another curiosity on the artistic side, but not only, also on the conceptual side, is that, well, in memes, actually, you don't, I guess, but in emblems, you have a lot of symbols, a certain use of symbols. How do you see that? They're kind of like, how do they choose them? What is the, the way in which they think about symbols? I mean, I think it's hard to say because there's so many different types of emblems. So like with devotional emblems and Jesuit priests wrote a lot of emblem books and there were definitely use of symbol as, as like metaphysical markers and the idea that reading this kind of combination of image and text would help you contemplate the divine. But there's also an element, I think, of this more didactic and moralizing side of emblems where it's supposed to be a mnemonic device to remember something through a symbol. And in that sense, it's the idea that you all, you can store information more easily, like Francis Yates's writing about memory palaces and things like that. I'm much more interested in the metaphysical side, generally, but I wouldn't like to say it was definitive of either. So remaining a little bit on the contemporary Another thing they bring to mind sometimes to me, also with imprese, which are more personal kind of like emblem type thing, is something like a personal logo with a motivational phrase, not quite just do it with a squiggle, but something kind of of the type. Do you think that we degrade them if we think of them in this way sometimes also, or is there something to it? I definitely think they're related. I've thought about this before, and I think the only difference between them really is that imprese are more boastful. Um, and emblems have the kind of sense that maybe there's a kind of wider meaning outside an individual, but in reality, emblems are also very boastful and often they kind of come across sometimes as forms of like Instagram self-help or like motivational posts. To remain once again on the contemporary, but keeping the emblems with us, I know that you also have an interest in politics, grassroots organizing in particular. Poetry and politics have been together for a long time, especially in the 19th and the 20th century. Seems that today maybe a bit less in a sense, or maybe that the combination between the two has changed. Not necessarily bringing in emblems, you can if you like, but as a poet and a political person, how do you see these two elements, poetry and politics, working out together today? I think it's a really difficult question. I mean, I think there is quite a lot of what I would consider to be subject-wise political poetry in various ways, and that there are quite a lot of poets writing what we might think of as explicitly political poetry, for sure. I suppose I'm aware that there's a very conservative reading culture in the UK, where there's a lot of literalism, and there's been a long-standing kind of anti-intellectualism where concepts are viewed with suspicion. So it might seem a sort of more strange answer, but I suppose my interest in where these things overlap, perhaps this kind of different idea of reading that you might find with emblems, a more kind of open reading 
where the meaning is not literal. And so I suppose I would see that as one outcome of it. But the other is like having been doing a lot of political organising, that work is very administrative and is so far from the language and the materiality of language that I'm interested in poetry. And I think it takes quite a bold claim to say that poetry can offer anything to politics at all, apart from maybe an interest in the world, because I do think that that work is, in essence, so different. I've noticed how much administrative language this kind of becomes part of your daily reality, and that's not a kind of, like, cool or sexy idea of politics, but now I think probably what's political is just, like, writing some emails. As a parting gift, I would like to ask you if you could recommend also some books or some further reading in case our listeners want to explore a little bit more what we have discussed so far. Karen Pincus wrote an amazing study of emblems called Picturing Silence, and that's really, really good. So on the emblems, I would recommend that. On the poetry, there's so many good poetry books out at the moment now. I think it's a really great time. Um, for poetry. Will Harris has got a book out next year in March, I think, called Brother Poem. And it's amazing. And it's also kind of interested in these ideas of parallel worlds and, and possible lives. And so maybe that's a little bit relevant to this. Arianna Dalla Costa from the Warburg Institute in London. Arianna, thank you for coming on our podcast. Your research focuses on something that is even more arcane and ancient than emblems, divination and geomancy. So allow me to start with a stupid question, but what is divination? And also in particular, what is geomancy? I'm going to start with the etymology because I think it's always very clear. And divination comes from, you know, the Latin verb divinare. But already in the English, it's very clear that it contains the word divine. And that's because the concept of divination is to be inspired by a god or a goddess or a deity. And another interesting definition, I think, was given by Isidore of Seville, who lived between the 6th and 7th century AD. He wrote an encyclopedic work which became very, very important um, during the medieval period. And he uh, defines divination as being filled with gods. So there's a double element to it. One is of that of being inspired by a god. And the other one is more subtle, is that of participating somehow in what it should only be known by gods and a form of knowledge which should be reserved to God. And that's usually uh, knowledge of the future and also knowledge of hidden things of occult things so I'd say divination is it then becomes more generally though that any form of prediction that concerns the future and hidden things and geomancy is a form of divination which predicts the future but also hidden thoughts in the human mind I'm going to start again with um, with the etymology and geomancy means birth divination and it's the translation of an Arabic term, Ilmaramal. And Ilmaramal means the science of the sun. So both in the Western and in the Arabic tradition, the name indicates the material support that was used for this practice. 
And geomancers predicted the future by drawing some patterns of dots in the sand. And they would do that without counting them and in a sort of a mental state that could, I guess, be described as a trance. And the medieval belief was that by putting aside their rationality, the geomancer were moved by the celestial bodies, by the planets and, and by the stars while, while drawing on the sand. And these signs on the sand that were then looked at for predicting the future were believed to be representations of the stars. And that's why geomancy was sometimes called a form of short astrology. That's because it was a sort of shortcut. It didn't require any complex calculation. It didn't require any astronomical instruments in order to derive the positions of the planets. You were saying that divination has to do with the divine and also kind of looking at the world through the eyes of the divine, in a sense. So it's not just a technique. Does it mean that to be a real diviner, you have to transform yourself, become divine yourself? There's definitely this, I'd say, maybe a ritual element of preparing yourself to receive this form of knowledge. And this is something that is shared by other forms of divination, but also other practices that are linked with both kind of the channeling of, of celestial influences or of supernatural influences. So, you know, things like fasting or performing at a certain time of the day or waiting for a certain cosmological or astral moment to perform and certain, I'd say, like rituals of purification in preparation for that. You were talking about geomancy as this reading of signs that are drawn in a form of automatic writing. Automatic writing brings to mind the surrealist poetry writing. I was wondering if when you look at this practice of divination, you see something that brings to your mind more poetry and the reading of symbols, the reading of symbols in the world and the writing of symbols, or maybe it reminds you more of an idea of a strange branch of science, like a scientist looks at the world and reads the symbols. But maybe in that case, it would be also interesting to know what kind of science can accommodate something like this. I would say both. I think on the poetic side, it actually comes to my mind there's this form of divination, another form of Arabic divination, and it employs a cosmological diagram, which is called a za'irda. And it's very interesting because this horoscope or um, diagram contains many different elements, among which you know, the planets, the 12 zodiacal signs, the four natural elements, but it also contains along the lines that compose the diagram, the letters of the Arabic alphabet. And to predict the future, the question to this diagram has to be asked in a specific meter of poetry. And through a very complex and, in my opinion, quite unclear set of processes, these letters that compose the question are mixed together and recombined. And what the practitioner has to do is to put them back together and with the same letter compose the answer, again, in the same meter of poetry. Thinking of the etymology of poetry and of the Greek word poem from which it comes from, it's a very creative um, use of language. It's not made to describe reality or not only, but also to act in it, transform it. And I think that's also what links something like poetry, but, but divination to science, because 
in a sense, science too is the goal of, of scientific knowledge is to be able not only to describe reality, but also to make, to act in it and to make choices that work well for certain purposes. And I think on the importance of language for like the manipulation of nature too, I think it's quite interesting looking at both the Western and the Eastern tradition, both the Islamic tradition, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition too, is the fact that these are religions of the book and the creation is made through speech, so spoken language. And so these idea that um, you know, was very popular in, in the medieval period and then links together practices such as astrology, but also more practices that today, disciplines that today we would still describe as sciences, is the idea of nature as a book, a book written in a symbolic language, and that God invites men to read in order to understand human history and, and to act in it. I was thinking that this is, of course, already true of physical reality, but it's especially true, I think, if we think of the project that is currently being discussed or prepared of the metaverse, non-physical reality, which is entirely made of bits of language in which everything is not accidental, but is somehow meant to be there and being able to decode the symbols all around you or the meanings all around you might have some, yeah, might change the way in which you experience it. Do you think that there will be a return of this kind of divination and geomancy in a non-physical virtual environment? I wouldn't know. I would, I'd be curious to see that. And I think I'd be curious to see a return of different uses of language, creative uses of language that maybe are not that well-known or experimented anymore. Let's remain for a moment on politics in the sense that what you are researching is not only geomancy and divination, but also a particular idea of science, which emerged at a particular time, a particular place. So the medieval Mediterranean. Of course, I think for most people, if you think about the Middle Ages in the Mediterranean, the first idea that comes to mind is the Crusades and the idea that that was the time in which things were terrible because there was fundamentalism, identitarianism, and intolerance everywhere. But looking at your research, the picture that emerges is actually quite different. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. I think there are three main points of focus that it's interesting to look at three different geographical areas. And one is, of course, the Crusader states. One is Sicily. The other one is Spain. And I think these are three very interesting places of not only collision, but also encounter between Islamic culture and Christian culture. And I think it's very interesting to look at the, how intellectually rich uh, this encounter was. I mean, looking especially at Spain, it was not only an encounter between Arabic-speaking and Latin-speaking people, but also there was a very strong Jewish community. And, you know, particularly looking at states in Spain where these three groups were working together, you can really see practical collaborations. And one example is that of translations of texts from Arabic into Latin. And it's easy to think of these works of translations as they would happen today. But of course, there were no schools of translators, there were no rules. And what happened very often is that at least three people were involved for the translation of a single text. That was because for Latins, it was very, very difficult to learn Arabic. For Jewish scholars, it was much 
much easier um, to access that. And therefore, usually a translation would best be translated from Arabic into a vernacular language by a scholar of Hebrew. And then the Latin translator would come and translate the vernacular into Latin. Another way this was happening was by having someone reading out loud the Arabic because listening to Arabic, well, it's much, much easier than reading it. And then the Latin translator would just write down what, what he thought he was listening, which sometimes has very interesting outcomes. It's very interesting to see this aspect of, I think, the coexistence of these different cultures. And we definitely have, I mean, Western culture has a, owes much to this collaboration. And it's fascinating to think that at the origin of Western science, there is something quite unusual to think, magic on the one hand, but also a collaborative work, which sounds like a very contemporary practice, but medieval practice done across religious, cultural, and political divides, and also state-funded, which sounds like an utopia today. Remaining on today and uh, thanking you for having been with us, I would like to ask you the same thing that I asked earlier. Is there anything that you would recommend to our listeners in case they would like to explore in further depth what you have discussed today? I'd suggest Astrology in the Renaissance by Eugenio Goran. It was first published in Italian, but it's easy to find the English translation. And I think that's a very interesting book to see how the various branches of knowledge and the various theories that were inherited both from Greece and Islamic culture were integrated into Western culture. And I think the second one, maybe it's easier to find in libraries rather than in bookshops, is Lynn Thorndike's A History of Magic and Experimental Science. Thank you very much, Dr. Lucy Mercer and Ariana Dalla Costa, for having come on our podcast. Thank you for being with us to our listeners. As you heard, we kind of had a different way of approaching an exhibition or a work of art. And in fact, we've talked about different ways of looking and listening and reading the world. We have talked also a lot, almost exclusively in a way, about the past, which is maybe unusual, talking about contemporary art. But as you might have realized when we were discussing memes and Renaissance emblems, contemporary science and medieval magic, every innovation has a tradition. And maybe sometimes it's useful to think that the future is behind us. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. TBA21 on stage is editor-in-chief is Francesca Tyson bonamitza Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Project manager, Nina Speranda. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Theme music, Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.